Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Miracle, and I'd like to welcome you to Disrupt, a podcast from Cedarville University's Center for Pharmacy Innovation. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking with Dr. Melody Hartzler. Dr. Hartzler has been teaching at Cedarville University for 10 years and currently serves as the Associate Professor of Pharmacy Practice. She's been part-time with this role for the last four years, while also developing a practice in family medicine at Western Medicine Family Physicians in Fairborn, Ohio. She also owns her own business, Farm to Table, where this year she has contracted over 20 pharmacists to provide consulting services focused on functional and integrative medicine. You can find her site at farmtotable.life. Dr. Hartzler, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you doing today? I am doing all right. How are you? Good, good. Well, we can get started right away, of course. Um, Today we'll be talking about advocacy efforts as well as what that looks like with your practice, how you've been able to utilize pharmacy for uh, promoting pharmacy and uh, the progression of our career as well as the, uh, the field itself. Um, so I guess to begin with, just an easy question right off to start, what does pharmacy advocacy mean to you? Sure. So I think advocacy is, is probably too, well, it's more, probably more than twofold, but the main things I think of are one, you know, speaking up about what our profession can do to legislators and to influence change and like laws and, and how we um, actually can practice because we're told, you know, what our um, scope of practice is by the state and um, sometimes federally, but a lot of this comes down from, from the state level. And so we have the Ohio Pharmacist Association and the Ohio um, Association of Health, Health System Pharmacists that work together to advocate on our behalf. And um, being involved in those organizations, I served um, as a trustee for the Ohio Pharmacist Association for several years. And um, you really get to see the intricacies of how um, that happens and how, you know, people from our organization are, you know, going to the state house and testifying and, and being able to, you know, influence um, legislators, helping them understand the role that pharmacists can have and helping them understand um, the education that we have as well. Um, I actually got to testify once um, back uh, when we were trying to move forward the consult agreement language. So early in my career, um, the consult agreement that allowed a physician and a pharmacist to work together was pretty limited um, in an outpatient setting. In the inpatient setting, it was a little more expensive um, as far as, you know, dosing aminoglycosides and other things that happen in the hospital, um, anticoagulation therapy and things like that. Um, but from an outpatient standpoint, it basically said that a physician had to enter into an agreement with one pharmacist and one patient for one disease state. So you can imagine when you're thinking about chronic disease that people have four or five things the pharmacist could be involved with. So I've got to have five different papers. And then actually the original language in the law said that the pharmacist had to attempt to contact the physician prior to making a change. And so it sort of defeated the purpose of the consult agreement that, you know, the pharmacist had to reach out to the physician before making the change, even though the physician was essentially by the paper giving permission to the pharmacist. So as an organization with Ohio Pharmacist Association and other, you know, pharmacists across the state, you know, we were trying to change that to make it um, more reflective of the skill set and the relationship that that pharmacist and physician had. Um, so I was able to go and testify um, in the house and just, you know, talk to them about, you know, what pharmacists do, what my role in family medicine was, um, and help them understand, you know, what this might look like. And so that outcome of that um, over, I think it was probably a two-year discussion, because I think what happened was um, towards the end of the year, there wasn't enough time and a legislator to 
to get those things passed and had to be restarted the following year. But by the next time it went around, um, we did um, have success with that. And so it was in 2016 that the change was made. And then pharmacists actually were able to have an agreement. It can have multiple disease states. It can have multiple pharmacists, multiple physicians that sign the agreement um, with a process that the patient would consent and allow us to um, participate in chronic disease management. So that's just one example of um, lots of things that, you know, OPA has worked on and, and advocated for across our state provider status is another big thing that they've had in the last several years. Um, and they're still working, even though the law has changed, it, ne- it hasn't necessarily reflected a lot of change in insurance until recently. And so um, most recently, Ohio Medicaid has now allowed for um, pharmacists to register as providers, which is pretty exciting. So lots of cool changes, but it really takes momentum from pharmacists. Like if none of us were actually talking to legislators about those skills that we have and, and how that can improve patient care, um, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't get changed. So, um, there's a lot of people, you know, not only, um, the OPA team, but a lot of other pharmacists that have been heavily involved, involved, um, even more so than myself, um, in, you know, advocating for those changes. But I think also, advocacy besides you know the direct advocacy to legislators also can be just how you practice and how you um, influence change in a small place. Um, it can be advocating for your patients. And so a lot of times I was actually I'm hiring an LPN right now to work with our pharmacy team. And one of the things I was talking about yesterday was, you know, how we advocate for our patients because they leave the office, they get a prescription, they go to the pharmacy and the pharmacist, you know, or not the pharmacy, but they sometimes don't get the prescription. And sometimes it's because it needs a PA, you know, prior authorization. Sometimes it needs um, a clarification, you know, from the office. Sometimes it's a drug interaction. The pharmacist needs to talk to the physician, but sometimes a patient doesn't understand exactly why they're not getting it, or maybe they didn't get communication or didn't understand the communication back to them. And then, you know, they don't start the new medication or they don't pick up what they were supposed to pick up. And um, so sometimes we have to help them navigate what that looks like and otherwise you know patients come back next month and oh yeah i didn't take that i I didn't hear back from anybody um the patient really has to be an advocate for themselves especially in this health the way that our healthcare system is set up and so helping patients to be an advocate for themselves i think is part of advocacy too in addition to um you know expanding the practice model i think innovation goes alongside with advocacy so you know finding ways to make the pharma, you know, even though the way the current system is set up doesn't pay pharmacists directly in a lot of places. Now, like I said, we're moving forward with Medicaid in Ohio and some other states have pilot programs, but in general, um, we're not considered Medicare providers and we can't bill on our own, um, you know, MPI numbers for most cases in an office-based setting, but there's a lot of ways that we can work with physicians to reduce, um, you know, improve outcomes that improves their reimbursement for various um, pay for performance programs. Um, there's ways we can work with them on an incident two standpoint um, and bill for services, um, chronic care management, tradi- or transitions of care. Like there's lots of different places pharmacists can plug in. And so that was really when I um, stepped back from my full-time role at Cedarville and I moved into a part-time role there, but also developing this new practice um, in 2000. 16, I was able to really just highlight for the position that I was going to be employed by, you know, here's the areas where pharmacists can make a big impact in the practice. Here's the areas where we can get reimbursed um, greater because of that impact that the pharmacist is doing. Um, So basically, like, how do I justify, you know, you paying me to do this, but also, you know, showing him the value that pharmacists um, would bring to the table there. Yeah. So it sounds like 
there's a, a few major pillars, and one of them would be then this sort of patient-sided advocacy where you want to make sure that whether through your your own experience and the care that you're providing to them or uh, whether it's that uh, you mentioned it as them advocating for themselves, but um, I guess another way to look at that might be um, empowering them to make uh, informed yeah. healthcare decisions. So mm-hmm. there's sort of that pillar. Yeah. Um, and then at the same time, it's also whether with legislators or other healthcare providers, mm-hmm. uh, sort of showing off the profession of pharmacy, mm-hmm. letting them know a bit more about what it is that we can do, yeah. the educational background that we have, um, things like that. And you mentioned as well, uh, you've been able to, um, go and, uh, you know, testify a few times or once or twice, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. And, um, mm-hmm. of course those efforts previously from, uh, provider status initiatives and now CPAs, uh, yeah. that's totally come full circle, even just within the last couple of weeks with those NPI yeah. provider status, uh, uh, numbers are now out, um, and rules have been clarified for what a CPA looks like, uh, who you're allowed to have them with things like right. that, even yeah, just in the last couple of weeks. Changes. Um, yeah, in December, there were some changes as far as being able to actually do those with nurse practitioners and PAs as well as physicians. So, um, so yeah, so lots of exciting things. I mean, we've figured out a way to make it work in our practice because we do have mid levels. Um, and we wanted to be able to service all the patients with our pharmacist, um, and making sure the physician oversight was involved in that the whole time. But now that becomes a little easier to do. So yeah, it's exciting. definitely an exciting time for Ohio pharmacy. Yeah. So yeah. regarding that, of course, there's always going to be a way forward and that way forward might have some obstacles and some barriers in front of it. Mm-hmm. So what do you anticipate or what do you maybe currently see as some of the biggest challenges that are still facing pharmacy practice today? Yeah. I mean, I think the payment situation is still challenging as far as, um, you know, the direct reimbursement to pharmacists for these services. Um, I think less so in family medicine because there's other ways to work directly underneath a provider in incident to fashion um, or in a physician office, and but more so in that pharmacist that wants to do this on their own or work collaboratively through their own pharmacy in a local physician office to have those collaborative practice, you know, experiences and, or even, you know, not necessarily collaborative practice. So pharmacists could provide some diabetes education services, recommendations without actually changing the medication and still, you know, want to get paid for that cognitive service. So, so I think that part is still evolving. Certainly we're closer than we were, you know, um, two or three years ago, um, in making that happen. I think maybe the, one of the challenges I see in that real, that model really working well, um, is the communication piece and that we're still not part of, you know, the EMRs aren't connected. You know, obviously we've got HIPAA pieces to that, but if we are going to really make an impact, I really believe that the pharmacist being embedded into the primary care arena, as far as, you know, an office or even just connected on EMR, whether they're working remotely, um, is really going to be a better solution than the pharmacist standalone only seeing what is prescribed and not seeing the whole picture because there's so much um you know from a lab standpoint 
past communication, you know, if we could just be a part of that and see what that looks like reading through past history um, with a patient, like our recommendations could be so much more valuable um, to be able to have all that information. So I think that piece um, is something, you know, that connectedness in the healthcare system, it doesn't just go for pharmacy and primary care. I mean, connected to specialists, you know, if I don't know what the cardiologist is doing or the, the pulmonologist, the endocrinologist, if everybody has got a different system and, and not communicating back their consult notes that makes it really challenging to you know know what you should be doing with the patient or how the cardiologist would feel about this change if you've got the patient that shows up with high blood pressure still even though they're seeing all these people um who's who's going to make that change and you know all of that kind of thing is always you know sort of a struggle from the you know primary care centralized medical home standpoint so i think you know moving towards you know incorporating pharmacists into that care team and making them valued and enough to give them you know access to to all of those um you know records it would definitely make our um, system more efficient and more of our job as pharmacists would be more effective. Yeah. So the, the big challenge then is being viewed in the team and, and part of it. Yeah. yeah, Being part of the team um, and being, yeah, having the connectivity and, you know, with, uh, with the system so that you can know when the patient was in the hospital and when you might reach out to them or, you know, know when, you know, they, got new medications by another provider. And, you know, I know obviously you get the prescription if you're the community dispensing pharmacist, but if we're expanding our pharmacist roles to be consulting and some people are consulting only pharmacists, you know, it makes it you know, a little bit challenging to see that whole picture. If we're just logging into a, you know, system like, for example, the MTM system, some pharmacists are doing just MTM um, and logging into that system, which shows you their med list. It shows you what provider prescribes that medication, but beyond that, you don't have anything else to go on. You don't have labs, you don't have, you know, past charts. And so I think that makes it challenging for the pharmacist. And I think even in that system, it's sort of hard to see the previous years, um, CMRs, if I'm correct. And so being able to have that continuity and understanding, like, and that's what I love about primary care is that I can, you know, see all of those things and know exactly what's going on and, and be able to, you know, work and be right next door to that physician. So when there's an issue I can't handle, I can grab them and, and get it done. So I really think the next stage for pharmacists to really be impactful in chronic disease management is moving people from that outside consulting role into really connecting them with practices, whether that's still their own business contracting to, to offices or, um, you know, through an organization that contracts, you know, whatever that looks like. I mean, we're working, I'm working with a um, local business here, my business and another local business to, you know, plug pharmacists into these practices. So I really, I do believe that getting them connected, getting them in there is really the um, next step into being more successful to overcoming that. And that integration, not only would it be great for us to see an EMR, but in the reverse as well, we can then provide a service to other clinics where if they see, Hey, this patient is seeing a cardiologist, I don't have access to those records though, but I can go and find, they've been regularly picking up these blood pressure medications, a heart medication, whatever it might be for years, months, something like that. Um, then we can theoretically at least, uh, cut down on overprescribing polypharmacy, yeah, things yeah, like polypharmacy, that. Oh my goodness. That's such a issue right now. I mean, and so much of it comes back to the root of like, how do we care for ourselves with like, you know, simple things. Like if we talked about all the chronic disease, like metabolic disease guidelines, like 
diabetes and hypertension, hyperlipidemia, like it all comes back to diet, exercise and good nutrition. Now there are some familial cases of high cholesterol and things that we have to address, but the majority of cases, like we, all the national guidelines recognize nutrition is, is a piece of that. And so I think pharmacists can be involved in that conversation too, you know, because it's part of our guidelines and um, we really just have to have to shift more how we think about that stuff too, and try to help patients and empower them. Like you said, like empower the patients that you don't have to be on this medication for the rest of your life. Like if you can make these changes in your life. And I think that speaks volumes to them because so many patients don't want to take this, you know, bucket list of, of medications either, but they've been told that they have to in a lot of situations, or they've just been handed every time their labs are off, you know, a new, a new prescription. But I think pharmacists are realizing, I think more pharmacists are realizing, you know, the issues with polypharmacy that are becoming more or less likely to, you know, recommend certain medications themselves. So I think it's, it's been good to see, you know, sort of, we can't expect that people walk around on 20 medications. And I mean, that's probably not the norm, but I would say like 10 for a chronic disease patient is pretty, you know, if you've got diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and it's just, that's not sustainable for, for the patient or, you know, for, um, the healthcare system. Yeah. And in a, in a sense, then in the community pharmacy, we can almost act as a tether in that sense for different professions. They can all help manage a patient all at the same time. Uh, so you mentioned, uh, some challenges that we do, that we do have, like not having access to EMR as well as some other professional challenges. What sort of efforts do you think are needed to change or challenge these issues? other than just integrating into an EMR? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think pharmacists by nature are not um, well connected with the medical community. Um, So I think one of my things that I've been, you know, somewhat successful with and and try to bring value to my business partnership um, as far as expanding pharmacist services and ambulatory care is, is really connecting with the medical community. And I was blessed um, as my first role at Cedarville um, was to be embedded in a physician residency practice. So not only did I get to work with those physicians, but every year new physicians would come in and residents would be trained. And so I think that really helped me to see like what the physician needs and what, um, what the partnership looks like and how it can look different with different physicians, because not everyone's prescribing patterns or, or skill set is the same, even though they've all done medical school and, you know, this residency program, they still have areas where they excel at just like us. There are certain things I excel at that I don't expect. Like if someone brought me an oncology patient and asked me to, you know, do their therapy, that's not my thing. And so I think figuring out you know, how to connect with providers is one step. And then also like how to talk to them about, um, you know, what they need. Cause they, we can come in and say like, our we can, you know, talk all day about what a pharmacist can do and how we can help you and blah, 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 what we think we can do, but what they think they need is maybe something different. And so we have to really go in those conversations as, you know, this physician, you know, asking this physician and and not really talking a lot and saying, you know, what is your practice struggling with and how can I help you? And, and then we bring in, okay, this is how we can make that a business model and, and, and do this well. Um, but you know, we have to be able to start with that conversation of how can we help them and what is that going to look like for their practice and, and what they need. So some people need, you know, 
a cardiology practice, you know, might need something different than, you know, a family medicine practice. Some of it may be similar in how you approach it. Um, but just coming in and saying, I can do these five things and those may not be the five things that the practice really needs. Maybe they have like an example cardiology practice we talk to, you know, pharmacists normally are very proud of their way that we can manage anticoagulation, which is, you know, normally really good, but they already have a system for that. They've had it for five years. They've got nurses that are, you know, managing and working with the physicians to, to monitor those patients for anticoagulation. So they don't need that service from the pharmacist. And so that's an example of if I would have gone and said, oh, this is what we can do first, instead of asking them what they need, um, it might not have been as successful of a conversation. So I think we really have to, one, learn how to network well with um, providers you know, because a lot of, we're really good at networking with pharmacists, right? We're so good at that, but figuring out how we connect with those. And sometimes it's as simple. And I know it sounds silly as sitting down next to someone at like a drug presentation. And I know like some people like think those aren't good because, you know, it makes you biased or whatever, because they're serving you dinner. But honestly, that has been one of my most successful avenues for really connecting. Cause there's not a lot of other places that I get to sit and eat dinner and have a conversation with a family medicine physician in town or an endocrinologist in town. Um, so I think, you know, utilizing some of those other, you know, opportunities besides, you know, just calling them up on a phone and asking for a meeting can be valuable. Yeah. Utilizing, the resources and services that are naturally already around us. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've previously heard this sort of isolation. We've, we call it siloing of the profession. Mm-hmm. And I, I would, my, my first question would always be then, well, of course, well, how do we get out of the silo? But it sounds like you're already doing something like that and uh, sort of engaging these residents and the physicians that you work with. So when you are, first showing up to practice and some of these uh, new students or new residents come in, um, are they, do they seem open to it? Are they they excited to work alongside you or do you think that they see the value immediately that you can provide to the team? Yeah. So I haven't worked in the residency practice for the last, um, since 2016 is when I transitioned from that to the other practice and the new practice, we don't have residents, but we get new physicians, new providers, you know, periodically. So, you know, in both places, I think that, you know, sometimes if they worked with a pharmacist in the past, they're like, Oh my goodness, I'm so excited. Um, and then other times it takes time for the provider to warm up. Um, one physician that I worked with, um, at my new practice actually was a resident at the clinic. And so of course he was like, Oh man, like, this is great. We're going to work together again. And, and he sent me all kinds of referrals and patients. Um, and then, you know, there's other physicians that have been working there by themselves for, you know, five, 10 years. And it took them a little longer to like, see what the pharmacist could do and value. And so I think you just have to, if you go into a larger, obviously it's different if there's only a couple providers, but if you go into a larger practice, you really just have to figure out your physician champions, who's, you know, really interested in working with you, you know, figuring out ways that the office also can support. So that's one of my biggest things of walking into practices, like how can the office, you know, identify patients besides, I mean, you obviously want the providers to identify patients as they see them, but is there, you know, some markers that they're trying to improve, like their A1Cs, you know, so anybody with an A1C over a certain level, can we print out the list of those patients and try I mean, cold calling always doesn't, doesn't always work, but sometimes you can be successful with that and, and calling them and seeing how they're doing and, you know, having a conversation with the patient and then, okay, Hey, this sounds like something we could follow up on in the office this in a couple weeks, you know, in a couple weeks. So it can be um, good. I find um, it was interesting in the different practices. 
the first practice, I went by Melody. Um, and then the second practice, my physician was like, you have a doctorate in pharmacy, right? And I was like, yeah. He's like, well, then we're going to call you Dr. Hertzler. And I really think that that changed like how some staff respected me and how patients respected me and even colleagues, you know, so, um, and made me more at the, not that I have the same degree as them. They have a medical degree. I have a doctor of pharmacy degree, like MD versus PharmD. It's not the same, but I think it helped like a little bit in how the patient viewed um, me as part of the care team, as well as, as well as the, you know, staff at the office and things like that. So it's little things like that that you don't think about that can be um, helpful. Um, There's also, you know, you want to get your office manager, if you're in embedded in a primary care or any kind of office, like making sure the office manager really understands what your role is because they're like the ones, you know, and I think it took me years to figure that out and how important that was um, because they need to know, like what you're doing with the patient so they can advocate for you as well as in amongst the patients and amongst the staff. Um, and so there's a lot of pieces, you know, to developing a practice, but it does relationships are so important. Um, and I think that's the piece that is, that is missing from the model of a pharmacist outside the practice. Um, working with the practice, I think it, it can still work and be successful, but the relationship isn't quite as tight there. Um, so what the, you know, physician might allow a pharmacist to do that they don't really know that's just outside the practice might be a lot different than what they know, like that I do and watch me do on a daily basis with the patients and the notes back to them and things like that. So I really do think in what I've seen work and not just in my practice and and what I've seen work in other places that the embedded model really does provide a little bit more value than the pharmacist on the outside. But part of that comes to the relationship and then also the access, like we talked about to the whole picture. And the relationship then that goes right back to one of the pillars we talked about at the beginning, not only are we advocating for patients, but also for the providers that we're working with, as you develop that relationship, then it's kind of uh, a benefit back to us. They might go speak yeah. with other people yeah. and say, hey, we have a pharmacist here. You need to hire one at your practice. Um, right. I will, yeah, exactly. My physician is always telling his his other you know, physician friends, especially in the area, like, listen, like this has been really successful for us. We've been profitable. We've made great changes for our patients. Like it's a win-win for everybody. Um, and so when you have that person that is the owner of the practice physician, like advocating for you, that speaks way more volumes than me going to tell someone myself that I can do this, you know? So, um, so yeah, so creating those relationships is certainly a big, huge piece of advocacy. Okay. So we've talked a bit about a, a whole lot of areas for how you can advocate as a pharmacist. Um, that could be anything from those relationships that you're developing, showing people uh, the efficiency or efficacy that you might have in your practice, as well mm-hmm. as um, we've, we've kind of also hit on um, legislation and efforts regarding that. Most of those tend to be more uh, graduated pharmacist focused. So what is a way that you think students can get involved now Yeah, I mean, students can certainly get involved in the state organizations. Um, National organizations are advocating on a different level as well. Um, So being involved in those organizations is really an important piece, I think. And what develops, you know, me as a student, you know, being a part of those organizations, you could see the process. And I was a student trustee actually for OPA one year when I was a student at Ohio Northern. And um, 
you know, I sat in those board meetings and sometimes I didn't have a clue what they were talking about when they start talking about reimbursements to pharmacies and all these numbers and, you know, what you get, a percentage of what and all this stuff. And so I remember thinking, oh my goodness, this is crazy. And and even my first years as a pharmacist on the board is still learning some of the terminologies, but I think it does give you a peek into, you know, what it's about. Um, I love the legislative committee, um, you know, it, it's funny because you see yourself like as even like a high school student, I was involved with like AP um, politics and we would do some of these conversations and talk about legislation, but even to like turn that, okay, I didn't really go that route with career, went into pharmacy, but I can still use some of those um, skill sets. So I think, you know, learning those things is really cool as a student, uh, whatever level you are, um, those student legislative days that OPA has, which they have one coming up. Um, it's virtual this year um, because of COVID, but um, still an opportunity to network with um, legislators. I mean, I just say sometimes it's it's not even just those days. You find I sat next to a legislator once on an airplane and had a conversation about pharmacists. He was um, Rick per- Rick Perales is actually still um, in the house, I believe. Um, and so, you know, when I see him come in, you know, I used to work in the community pharmacy there. And so I'd see him in the community. And so trying to identify who, if especially if you're in a small town, um, you know, trying to identify who those people are, whether it's, you know, the state legislators or the city council, you know, whoever it is, like be talking to them about the value of pharmacist and, and what you can do for the community. Cause you know, I think what we don't realize is those people, don't always know. Like, I think we assume that because we know so much about pharmacy that everybody has to know what a pharmacist is. And one of the things that pharmacy has been challenged by, I think, is that when we talk to patients, like when, even when I introduce myself as a functional integrative pharmacist to some people, they'll be like, well, how could a pharmacist who dispenses medications be doing functional medicine? Like they, I mean, that's like a big jump for them, much less to talk about how a pharmacist could be embedded in a primary care practice. Um, and so I think the public doesn't in general, doesn't know like what the role is and how much, um, schooling we get and, you know, very similar things to other medical professionals. And so, um, obviously we have more focus on the drug piece and physicians and and nurse practitioners have more focus on the assessment diagnostic piece. But I think talking about that helps them understand like how the team piece of it works really well together. Um, So, so yeah, so I think just talking, you know, about what you're doing, whether it's to your church family or to your, you know, um, community or, you know, different places going out and doing presentations. I know we have students that go out and talk to high school students about not only, um, you know, opioid, you know, type things, but they also get to talk about what a pharmacist does and, and how they can be influential. So I think helping the public shape that image of a pharmacist that's multiple places that's in the, in the, you know, dispensing role, the clinical role, you know, consulting role. Um, it will help, you know, and nursing's done that for a long time. Nurses work everywhere, right? We've got nurses in managed care. We've got nurses just like pharmacists. And so I think in general, their public perception has been able, they've been able to influence, you know, that a little bit better than pharmacists. And part of that, maybe they have one more, one voice, um, one big nursing organization nationally and, and locally. So, um, so I think that's one challenge that we have a little bit in pharmacy is we have some segregation between the organizations. I don't know if segregation is the right word, but 
just differences in what this organization wants to focus on in this organization. So I think at some level, the pharmacy organizations to truly help the public understand, you know, the value of pharmacists, we might have to work together on that. Communicating is definitely important for that. I remember, I, I believe it was last year at student legislative day sitting in an office. It was, if it wasn't last year, it was whenever we were last there in person um, yeah. But we were sitting in with a uh, one of the elected officials, and he he could list off the names of local pharmacists and local yeah. pharmacies that he knew personally who would stop by his office. They would mm-hmm. um, give him a call if they had something they wanted to talk with him about. Um, yeah. And I know uh, Ernie Boyd at OPA, he will, whenever he's talking with students and advocacy efforts, he'll always talk about how at one student legislative day, there was this big group of students taking a picture in their white coats on a staircase and uh, uh, Governor Kasich at the time came by um, and just said, who are you guys? Why are you here? And one bold student just proclaimed that they were there to uh, promote a, a certain vote on whatever sort of legislation was going through at the time. Can't quite remember. And next thing you know, it goes through. Um, just just having that presence, then not just the presence, but then being able to communicate exactly what you're there for and the sort of things that you are advocating for is, uh, is clear. And that can definitely help promote our profession. Yeah. With that too, like not giving up and and it doesn't have to be in person. It can be letters. It can be phone calls like to those people. Um, there's been a few times I've reached out to an office in Montgomery County about a bill that was put in and I wasn't comfortable with. And, you know, I didn't ever hear back. I called a couple times and, you know, I probably should have followed up even more on that. Luckily, I don't think the bill, you know, sort of didn't go through. And so I didn't have to worry too much about it. But had it, I would have been more persistent and, and expressing my views um, against that. And so I think that's the thing is we we just have to, you know, make time for it. Because, I mean, they could just write any legislation in that says pharmacists aren't needed in this process or this process. Um, so we just have to constantly be talking and be present. Um, if, if OPA wasn't present there and a lot of those things, I mean, there's a lot of strange things that happen in legislation, which I'm sure this year everyone has seen um, from a national standpoint, but you could have this bill about something completely different. And then there's a, a section of it that says, Oh, this is, you know, a new healthcare thing. And, you know, it unrelated HIPAA is a great example of that, um, that the bill, attention of the bill wasn't exactly how it all turned out. And so, um, so anyway, so there's just, I mean, there's reason to be present, whether it's, you know, virtually or, you know, just engaging in relationships like we talked about before. So we've got to talk about it because it's, it's been almost a full year at this point, <laughs> Yes, but how has COVID and the the COVID health crisis reoriented your views on specific efforts that pharmacists should advocate for? Yeah. So one, um, I think telehealth is here to stay. I think patients are not going to want to go back to sitting in um, a busy waiting room during flu season. And um, also, you know, I even think about like ER utilization and how drastically in, in some hospitals were laying off, you know, ER. I have an ER physician friend that lost his job at the early part of this pandemic because, you know, people weren't overutilizing the ER like they had been before for non-emergent matters. And so I think 
if healthcare does what it should, like we should continue to focus on that as like, let's not overutilize this really expensive service and shift patients to, you know, whether it's an urgent care or following up with their PCP. There's so many times we have patients just go to the ER, even though we were open, like the building is literally open. We have nurse triage available and we've got patients showing up the ER for a UTI. So continuing to help patients understand, um, you know, really what that service is for, I think is important for, for um, providers. But the telehealth piece, I think is so, for pharmacists, and, and we need to advocate that, you know, we can continue to provide services, not only for pharmacists, but primary care, like via telehealth for chronic care. For acute care, it doesn't make sense as much. We need, I mean, there's some things like pink eye and, you know, some simple things that, you know, maybe make sense for telehealth. But I think, you know, in general, chronic disease management can be done really well over um, telehealth. Um, and it also expands your reach as a pharmacist too. So when I do telehealth in my personal business, um, it's cash based, um, but I can reach anyone in Ohio with my license instead of just the circle of people here in, um, the Dayton, Dayton area. So, so I think that, you know, peace is important and, you know, helping, I still have patients make sure that they have a yearly appointment with their physician at least, or they've had a physical exam for whatever condition that they're, you know, being seen for recently. Um, but so I think the physical exam portion is really important still. So we can't, you know, have patients forever on telehealth. But um, I think from a blood pressure management, diabetes management, especially because we have so many tools, like you can have home blood pressure monitors, um, some which report back to the office, like, you know, with there's a lot of remote patient monitoring tools and actually billing codes associated with that now. Um, so we can get, you know, clues in if their weight increases and they've got a scale that's connected for, you know, heart failure patients and, you know, diabetes, we've got people that can wear CGM or continuous glucose monitors. And I can see what their whole day looks like for 14 days, you know, or long, you know, that's the longest a sensor works, but, you know, so the last month, you know, if they've worn it the whole two month, two 14 day periods, I can see everything. And so then coming into the office, you know, doesn't really give me any additional um, clue into that particular chronic disease. So there's a lot of cool things about telehealth. And I hope that, you know, some of this um, stays around and that Medicare realizes the value, um, especially for those high risk patients during, you know, times, um, you know, winter and things like that, when it's probably not ideal for them. But the other thing I think the practice shift is, I think it's been awakening or an eye-opening piece to see like how much, you know, obesity epidemic, this metabolic disease epidemic affects your immune function. And not only that, but nutritional deficiency. I mean, we have articles after articles after articles coming out about how vitamin D deficiency associated with severe COVID and how Americans are vitamin D deficient. Like we've known this for years. We've known Americans vitamin D deficient, especially those you know, people that live towards the Northern half of the United States. And, you know, is that why we saw so much greater problems than other, some of the other continents, um, you know, because of the obesity combined with, you know, the nutrient deficiency. And so when I think about my functional integrative hat, you know, Pete, integrative medicine had, it's like, you know, we need to really be addressing, like our bodies are built to have a good immune system. Our bodies are built to have good detoxification mechanisms, our liver and our kidneys and our gut do that. But they only do that if they have the proper nutrients and the proper fuel, the proper phytonutrients and signals, you know, going to them. And so um, I think from a primary care and pharmacy standpoint, we just really have to advocate for our patients to be, you know, having this, this ability to one, assess their nutrient depletion 
medications. I mean, medications themselves, that's, we always talk in the functional medicine community that nutrient depletions is one of the low hanging fruit for pharmacists to get involved in functional medicine because, you know, we can assess like, okay, this medication depletes CoQ10, statin, you know, if this medication might deplete B12. So having those, you know, supplements available for patients to go ahead and, you know, take or being able to take those labs and find out, are you depleted in CoQ10 or are you depleted in, in B12? Because your body, again, doesn't function optimally if you, if you are. And so the connection between medications causing nutrient depletions and then also just the diet piece and not having, you know, the right inputs, um, into the body. Um, stress is such a huge piece of chronic disease. Um, especially when we talk about diabetes and depression and obesity and, and things like that. And so I think that sort of like, you know, all came to on head, you know, with this pandemic as well. And so we've got so, so many people depressed and stressed about their parents, about their work situation. We've got parents running around, you know, being full-time teachers and also being, you know, their full-time work, you know, trying to do full-time work, which no one is actually actually able to do full-time work and full-time teach and parent, like it's just impossible. And so I think it really, you know, shows us that, you know, one, I think workplaces need to be, you know, maybe more flexible to families, um, for better work-life balance in general. But, you know, I think the health is all of these things. It's not just, you know, having, you know, not, I guess in functional medicine, we talk about health is not the absence of disease, like, or you know, it's, it's not just the absence of disease, like it's thriving. It's having like optimal nutrient status. It's having those reserves so that when we do get sick, we can bounce back quickly. Um, you know, this whole loss of sense and smell, a lot of that is related to zinc deficiency. And so people that have high, and we, there's a lot of discussion of zinc in this pandemic and, and the data as well. So, um, so yeah, I just think that it, it help, primary care pharmacy, everyone should be grabbing hold to the fact that like our nation is sicker because, we are not well, you know, to begin with. And so we really have to focus more on those chronic diseases. So the next time that this, you know, something comes up, because it's not like it's never going to happen again. I mean, um, we saw, you know, Spanish flu obviously was a really long time ago and now, but, you know, maybe the next one is closer than, than that one, one was away. So I think, you know, being healthy, we just really have to know that it's not just the fact that we don't have that, you know, 6.5 A1C and A1C is 6.3. Okay. You're fine. You know, like, you know, we have to have more like really heart to heart conversations with our patients about influencing change in their life. Um, one of the challenges to that being that the nutrition guidelines are like all over the place in this world, but you know, my biggest thing is eat whole foods, like, you know, limit processed foods, sugar in a can, like don't drink sugary beverages. Like, you know, some of those basic simple things that people are still doing that at this point in time, I think we know are not good for our bodies. We need to be focusing on as, as healthcare providers. This past year has definitely been very eye opening as to not just what the, the COVID crisis itself has been causing, but also just other well-known, but sort of pushed on the back burner or cast under the table sort of uh, health issues that are affecting um, life and livelihood really in our country. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, that is all the questions that we had for today. Uh, before we go, um, is there anywhere that our listeners can find you at or maybe a website that you'd like to yeah, let them know about? Yeah. So um, the website for Farm to Table is P-H-A-R-M-T-O-T-A-B-L-E.life, L-I-F-E. Um, and then I also teach about integrative and functional medicine and put together programming um, 
for pharmacists and for continuing education at functionalmedicinece.com. Um, and it's also fxmedce.com as well. Um, so we actually have a program. If you're interested in, you know, the entrepreneurial piece or expanding services, we have a business um, program coming up on March 6th. So we are excited about that. And um, we have some great other great pharmacists that teach all about developing um, practices. And, and so I'm really excited. So hopefully that will be um, interesting to many of you guys who are listening. All right. Well, Dr. Hartzler, uh, thank you for coming on today and taking time out of your day to uh, come on the podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to Disrupt, the podcast from the Cedarville University Center for Pharmacy Innovation. If you enjoyed listening today, then subscribe and share to this podcast so that others can find it too. Be sure to tune in next time as well. Thank you for listening. Thank you.